You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. In our polarized time, I think one of the things that most of us can agree on is that we all hate being around overtly prideful people, and we love being around genuinely humble people. I think one of the questions that naturally flows out of that is, if that's true, that we all, at least most of us, despise being around people that are overtly prideful, why do most of us still struggle to not be prideful ourselves? So the finale of this One Another series that we're going through tonight, finishing up tonight, is this last one, clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility towards one another. Humility is the aim of this text. We're gonna be fleshing out what does that look like, what Peter's calling us to here tonight. But we're gonna start at the beginning of verse five. This text we just read together, look back at verse five with me. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Peter is reminding those that are younger in this church that he's writing to that they are to submit to the chosen leaders of the church. And since 90, probably plus percent of our church would fall into a younger category, I think this is a good reminder for our church family, but it's not just a good reminder for you, it's also a good reminder for me. And yeah, once you know the way our church functions is, again, we are an elder-led congregational church. And so you as a congregation are the ones who appoint elders, but ultimately our elders are, again, accountable to you. But as a pastor here, I'm also accountable to our elders. It is good for you and it's good for me in humility to submit ourselves under the care of pastors in God's church. If you're a Christian, we tell people all the time, it doesn't mean you're supposed to be a part of Iron City Church, but you need to be intimately connected to some church somewhere. And part of that is so that you can have this safety of being cared for by shepherds that are under shepherds and the chief shepherd of Jesus who are called to pray for you. And again, be there to shepherd your soul towards Jesus. This is what we do in humility, is submit ourselves under the authority of Jesus' church. Pastors like parents are there to provide protection and wisdom, but unfortunately, sometimes in a broken world, that doesn't take place. And know this, that if parents, if you're still under your parents' authority, or again, if you're a member of our church or some other church, if your parents or pastor ever ask you to do something the scriptures say that you shouldn't do, You have an obligation as a Christian not to obey your parents or pastors in that. But as long as you are under the authority of your parents, or again, under Jesus' church pastors, and these folks, your parents or pastors, are not asking you to do something that is sinful, Peter is saying here to humbly follow their lead, knowing it's not you uh, that's going to have to give account for that, but them that's going to have to give account before the Lord for that. So this first point of humility here that Paul reminds us of on this section pointing us towards humility is that we are, as Christians, to submit ourselves under the authority of God's church, under the authority of the leaders of the church where the Lord has called us. The second half of verse five is where we find the one another that we're gonna press into together. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, 
with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So from birth on, most of us have this innate desire to rebel against authority. So our youngest is 20 month old, little Amos, sweet kid, but also it did not take long for this rebellious spirit to start showing up in our child. St. Augustine, the African church father said, depravity is the one doctrine you don't actually have to prove from the Bible. You can, but you don't have to. You just have to have a child and then it's proven, right? It starts coming out really early and see this rebellious spirit. Actually, the other day we were, again, just trying. He knows he needs to say please for things, was trying to get him to say please for something he wants, but just that spirit was coming up. Our girl, Eden, was just sweetly pleading with him to say please so we can, but no, there's this rebel in all of us that we have naturally in there because of sin when we're told to do something. But what's the remedy for all of this? It's humility. But this pride, again, is not new. This is something that goes back to the beginning, not the very beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, everything's good, right? But Genesis 3, sin comes into the story. Our first parents pridefully rebel against their creator, thinking they knew better than God, that God was withholding something from them. And so when we believe that lie, like our first parents, we're going to sin. And ultimately, all of our sin comes back to pride, of us thinking we know better than God, that our way is better, that we as the creation know better than the creator. But again, the remedy here is humility. Peter's saying, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Using this language of clothing here. Clothing is common, but clothing takes intentionality, right? Another thing that we're born with is we're not born with clothes on, right? Anytime we have clothes on, everybody in here has got clothes on, it takes intentionality to put clothes on, right? To clothe yourself is what Peter is saying here. This is language that's used throughout the scriptures. Again, all the way back to the garden. After sin comes into the world, our first parents clothe themselves trying to hide from God in their sin and shame. But then God steps in, the first picture of redemption we have, and he clothes them. And all throughout the scriptures, we're told that we have to put off certain things, especially in the New Testament and Paul's letters, we have to put off certain things and put on other things, to clothe ourselves. And here, Peter's picking up that idea. We need to put off our pride and to put on humility towards one another. This is something, again, because of our pride, because of our sin that's in us. We need a supernatural work of the Spirit to begin to cultivate this humility in us. And God has given that to his people. But he's also given us an example in his son. Pastor Demetrius, the first week of this series, took us through John 13, seeing Jesus' call for us to serve one another. Jesus there is this perfect picture of humility. Jesus, the eternal son of God, takes up the servant's towel and washes the feet of his disciples. Peter, who was who's writing this for us here, he was there that night. He had to interchange with Jesus, you remember from John 13. And Peter wasn't the only disciple that Jesus had to 
rebuke for his pride, but he was the one, at least we have written in the gospels, the one he most consistently had to rebuke for his pride. It seems like this was a major struggle for Peter, but here now Peter has the Holy Spirit. He's looking back on Jesus' example and he's calling his fellow Christians to clothe themselves in humility towards one another. Again, because of sin, our natural tendency is pride. And the very thing that we hate in other people, we struggle not to be ourselves. But not only do we not like prideful people, and there's a sense in which you say, the Lord doesn't either from this text. Here, Peter is quoting Proverbs 3, 34. It says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So an important question for you tonight. Maybe the most important question I'll ask is, do you want the God of the universe to oppose you? Do you want the sovereign God, creator of the universe, to oppose you? If the answer of that is yes, then continue on in your pride. God opposes the proud. If the answer is no, look at verse six with me. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Interesting to note here, Peter tells us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. So maybe instead of praying that God would humble you, it's probably a pretty dangerous prayer to pray, for God to humble you. Maybe more helpful and less painful to ask the Lord to give you grace to humble yourself before him. God gives grace to the humble but he opposes the proud. If you do not humble yourself under his mighty hand, again, the promise of the scriptures, the story on the Bible points us to the fact that you will be humbled before the Lord one day. Remember Philippians 2, we went through Philippians in the fall, this incredible letter from Paul, the church at Philippi. We have, again, this beautiful example, this perfect example of what humility looks like that Paul gives us in Philippians 2. Again, of Jesus, the eternal son, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, the one that Paul tells us in Colossians, the one that all things are made by him and for him, this one in humility stepped into poverty, became a man, was born into poverty in Palestine. He underwent all the miseries of this life. He was perfectly submissive to the will of his father his entire life. And he was obedient to his father to the point of death on a cross, taking the sin and judgment of his people upon himself. And Paul tells us because Jesus was obedient in humility to his father to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God the Father has highly exalted Jesus and given Jesus a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the choice is we can either humbly bow before Jesus, the King now, in submission to his Lordship, turning from our sin and trusting in him, or we can bow before him later in judgment. But either way, we will humbly bow before him. 
Those who are prideful act like they can be their own savior. And those very people will be the ones who are humbled on the final day. But people who, again, see the reality of this and humble themselves before the Lord because they know that they need a savior, these are the ones that Peter says will be exalted on the final day. Understanding our need, the greatness of our need, our need of God's grace should lead us to living a life of humility before the Lord and before one another. Pride brings separation to our relationships, but humility can bring us together. So recently, uh, well, for a while, I'd, my car had been overdue for oil change and uh, started feeling that shaking in my car for a little while. And again, just thinking, I've got, just got too much to do, just kept putting it off. And so my sweet, gracious wife uh, went and got my oil change for me. Um, and one of the things I was reminded once I got the car back and started driving around is it makes a big difference when you have things working properly in your car. Oil changes things. Humility is that kind of oil in our relationship. It makes things run much more smoothly. This is pride disrupts things in our relationships. But humility, again, gives us grace in our relationship with the Lord and one another for things to run smoothly. Humility means that we're not looking to exalt ourselves above other people. But as we saw in the second week of this series, Pastor Dustin from Romans 12, that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. This holy competition that we get to have as Christians, not looking to exalt ourselves above one another, but looking to outdo one another in honoring each other and pointing out evidence of grace in each other's lives. What does humility look like? It means that we are not, as we saw in Romans 14, pridefully looking to pass judgment over one another, over things the scriptures say that there are freedom for Christians in. What does humility look like in our life together? Well, again, as we saw in Romans 15, it means that we're not pridefully looking to exclude one another, but to welcome one another as God and Christ has welcomed us. What does humility look like? We saw in Galatians 6, it means that we are to remove pride from our hearts and humbly and gently restore one another when someone in our church family is caught into sin. It means Ephesians 4, when we realize that no one has sinned against us more than we've sinned against the Lord. And so in humility, we reflect the grace and kindness and patience and love that we've been shown by God and Jesus towards one another. And there are many other one another's that we could have gone through. I think there's 32 in the New Testament that we could have spent time on. We narrowed in on a few of them, but none of them tell us that, again, that we are looking to pridefully exalt ourselves over each other. None of them tells us that we should be skeptical of each other. But in humility, we're to walk in love towards the Lord and towards one another. So again, I think these one others are a great picture for what it looks like in our life together to walk in humility before one another, to clothe ourselves in humility. But what does it look like here, what Peter's getting at, to humble ourselves before the Lord? Look at verses six and seven. And he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. These are verses that have been familiar to me for a long time, again, I'm a pastor's kid, grew up in the church, 
heard these verses, memorized these verses a long time ago, but I missed the connection between these things that I really needed to get this week, that I was really grateful the Lord, again, uh, gave to me this week. So the question here is, what does humility before the Lord look like? Looks like verse seven, casting all of your cares on him, all of your anxieties on him, all of your cares on him because he cares for you. Humility looks like you and me realizing that we don't, we don't got this, that we are in need. We need God's help. The things that we are trying to carry are too heavy for us. But it's also realizing what is too heavy for us is light to God. He is strong enough to carry these things. You can cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you, because he's strong enough to carry them. I was reading a pastor from the UK, Andrew Wilson, said, worry is praying to yourself. I'm repeating that again, mostly for myself. Worry is praying to yourself. So this is the opposite of what this passage is calling us to do, right? When we worry, what do we do? We're talking to ourselves, confessing all these things to ourselves that we need to do. But here, Peter's saying, no, don't pray to yourself. Cast these things upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for you. Again, just transparency for you today. And why I need this connection is because as I've gotten closer to my sabbatical, there's been this growing anxiety in my body. I, I normally don't feel physical effects of anxiety in my body, but over the last couple of weeks I have. Again, just this growing feeling in my chest, in my stomach, waking up, heart racing, and been praying the Lord would take these things away. But these things have kind of felt like maybe Paul's Second Corinthians 12, this kind of thorn in his side. And Know if, if that's a normal thing for you, I think one of the things the Lord has shown me is that, again, from the scripture to say, when we feel these things in our body, when we feel anxiety, these things, first and foremost, are a reminder for us to pray. Again, not pray to ourselves and worry, but to pray to the Lord to cast these things upon him. You may be asking over and over again for him to take this feeling away. And by the Lord's grace, I hope he does. But if he doesn't, again, allow these feelings to drive you to prayer, to casting your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. He's big enough to handle these things. But the problem is sometimes we can take these small little things and hold them so closely to us that they block the Lord from our vision. It's possible for something really small to block something really big. It's possible, again, these chandeliers are big, but if I hold my little pinky up to my eye close enough, it can block that big chandelier right there. And again, that's what we often do. We get fixated on these little things, these cares in our lives, and allow them to block the Lord and who he is instead of casting them on him because he can carry them. So when you're anxious, pray. Throw these things to the Lord, knowing that he cares for you. I gave you a definition of sanctification last week. What sanctification means, our growth as Christians to be more like Jesus, more into the image of Jesus. And that definition last week was us growing to love what God loves more and hate what he hates more. Let me give you another definition of sanctification for this week. I think a lot of what sanctification, our growth as believers, 
is comes down to is us really believing what we know is true. My problem as a Christian is rarely that I don't know enough. My problem is almost always is that I'm not believing what I know is true. And so anxiety for me, again, just normal anxiety, not clinical anxiety, which I know, again, can be a different thing. Just normal anxiety to me comes back to unbelief. Again, it's me not believing that the sovereign God of the universe is my father and that he has promised in the end to work everything together for my good. And if I really believe that, I can trust him, right? No matter how big or small my anxiety seems, I can cast those things upon him. Knowing that this is my father's world, that he is in ultimate control, that he's proven himself good and trustworthy, ultimately through sending Jesus to us. So instead of being anxious, Peter says that we're to cast, we're to literally throw our anxieties, our worries to the Lord. Why? He gives us the reason because he cares for you. Again, we do not worship a distant deity. Again, who's far off, who doesn't care about his people. We worship a God who's intimately acquainted with his people. We also worship a savior who knows what suffering is like, who knows what brokenness is like. And again, he can sympathize with you in your weakness, Hebrews tells us. Psalm 103 tells us that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his No good father leaves their child alone in their tears and fears, but draws near to them. This is what our Heavenly Father does when we cast our cares upon him. Again, if we know his goodness, if we know his power, we would be fools. I'm a fool for not entrusting these things to him. He can carry them much better than I can. So what does humility look like? It looks like me not trying to carry these things myself. It looks like you trying not to carry these things yourself, but casting them on the Lord because he cares for you. Again, us not being anxious, us in humility casting things upon the Lord doesn't mean there's not scary things in the world. There is. Peter tells us of one in verse eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You must know that you have an enemy that wants to destroy you. There's a danger for us to think that the battle is over when it's not over yet. There's also a danger in thinking that the enemy is so far away that he can't get to us. As Christians, the scriptures are really clear that we have an enemy who wants to steal from you, who wants to kill you, who wants to destroy you. We must not be unaware of him and his schemes. And yeah, I think part of my anxiety this week, the past couple weeks has just been sensing that I think the enemy is trying to get a foothold in our church family right now. I don't know all the reasons why I'm sensing that, but again, maybe he's going out on sabbatical yeah, thinking, okay, this may be prime time for enemy to come in and get a foothold in our church family. So 
So I don't, I don't know what the enemy's up to. We just say, be watchful. Make sure that we are obeying the scriptures in our life together. We're not giving the devil any kind of room for opportunity in our lives individually, in our church, corporately. We need to understand our opponent. We don't need to overestimate him or underestimate him. If you're an athlete, you know there's a danger in underestimating your opponent and getting beaten in the end. But you also know as an athlete that there's a danger in overestimating your opponent. So my dad and I had very different athletic careers. So my dad lost three games his whole life in football. I lost my first three games ever in football. So uh, his teams often walked on the field and the other teams knew that they were beat. My teams often walked in the field and we knew that we were gonna get beat. So it's, it's different the way you approach your opponent often. Yet if you're overestimating your opponent, you may be beat before the first whistle, right? We need to know that we have an enemy that's prowling around, but he's also not behind every bush, right? He does want to devour you. But again, we, we don't need to always be scared that he's going to jump out and get us. You have an enemy that is more powerful than you, but is not more powerful than Jesus. The scriptures tell us, greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. Again, we don't have to live in fear, but we do need to be aware of what's going on around us. Again, our Western world wants to make us think like the, the spiritual realities are not real. We're getting 90 plus percent of the, the world around us knows the reality of the spiritual world. We, we may have some blinders on here in the West, but most of the other world is very aware of what's going on in the spiritual realm. We need to be aware of those things. We need to be prayerful about these things, knowing we have an enemy. But notice the contrast here that Peter's made. You have an enemy who wants to devour you, but you have a heavenly father who wants you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. An enemy who wants to devour you over here, but a heavenly father who wants you to come to him and to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Again, remember who's writing this, Peter. When Jesus was speaking to Peter in the gospels, he told Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But Peter, I've prayed for you. Hear me, brothers and sisters. If you belong to Jesus, Jesus also is praying for you. The book of Hebrews tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for his people. And Jesus' prayers alone are more powerful than our enemy. We can trust him. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us, but a heavenly father who cares for us. We have a savior at the father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. We have a spirit who's also interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. We are protected, brothers and sisters, but we must be aware what's going on around us. Paul gives some further, or Peter gives some further instructions here of how to interact with the enemy in verse nine. It says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're called here to resist. This is not passive, it's active. If you're not active in resisting, again, you are probably losing. Our faith must be active. How do we resist the devil? It says, by standing firm in your faith. 
Paul kind of fleshes this out in Ephesians chapter six. We're to take up the shield of faith, which is the scriptures, right? We're to fight, resist the way that Jesus did with the word, the sword of the spirit, and by praying at all times in the spirit. Through Jesus, we are promised victory, but we're also, Jesus promised us that there would be opposition in this world. The victory is sure, but the opposition reminds us that the battle is not over and we're not ultimately home. There's a danger for us to get too comfortable here, I think especially in the West as Christians, to begin to act like our hope and home is ultimately here. But I think as American Christians, again, we need to be reminded of something that Peter lays out for us here. Look at verse nine again. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we as American Christians, and the majority of us are white in this room, we can look to our city, not even just throughout the world, of especially our black and brown brothers and sisters have been a faithful example through the history of our city, but what does it look like to suffer for Jesus' sake? and still be faithful and hold on to Jesus. But we also need to look throughout the world and see those who are suffering for Jesus' sake. So this week was, again, a grace for me as I was feeling anxious. So I had to step away from some pastoral duties and go and check the mail. And in our mailbox, there was a magazine there that I get regularly called The Voice of the Martyrs and was able just to stop for a few minutes, read through it and be reminded of our brothers and sisters that are suffering greatly throughout the world right now, that are being faithful unto death and following Jesus. And that is no way I would feel like from the Lord of rebuking me and saying my my problems are too small to take to him. All, All of our cares and anxieties he cares about, none of them are too small, but it is good for us to keep things in proper perspective, right? To remind ourselves, again, what is going on beyond the little blinders that we can have up in our own lives. We need to look to our brothers and sisters, their faithful example of what it looks like to persevere in faith, to persevere in light of the precious promises that we have in Jesus. And Peter gives us one of those precious promises at the end of this section. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to the eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Peter is pointing us to the final day. Again, when Jesus himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish his people as we see at the end of Revelation will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The question is, how do we get to that day? And Peter says, we do it by clothing ourselves in humility towards one another, but also humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand now. Humility before the Lord looks like you realizing that you are too sinful and messed up to be your own savior. And that Jesus is your only hope of salvation and looking to him in faith. As I was praying through this this afternoon, I I felt impressed by the Spirit to also add, I I think for some of you in the room, humility is believing that Jesus' promises 
can actually be for you, that you're not too far gone, that you're not too sinful. You know that you're sinful, but you think that you're too far gone for Jesus to save you. You've done too much for him to save you. Humility for you would be actually believing that Jesus' promises are true even for you, that Jesus is a friend of sinners, that he draws near, that he loves to save those whose sin is ever before them. Those are the people that were welcomed by Jesus in his earthly life and ministry, the prostitutes and tax collectors, those who were cast off as the worst in society, Jesus welcomed in around his table. Jesus' final invitation that he gives us in the scriptures, again, on this final day, is anyone who is thirsty to come to him and to drink freely of his grace, drink freely of the waters of life without price. I've shared before, and I'm sure I'll share again, one of my heroes, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in referencing this final invitation from Jesus, talks about these drinking fountains that were in London in his day in the last half of the 20th century or the 19th century. These were free drinking fountains for anyone to come and drink from. And Spurgeon said, the only people that would go through the streets of London with parched lips were those who were too proud normally to get out of their carriages and go and drink from the same fountain that prostitutes drink from the same fountain that he said chimney sweeps, those that were, again, the lowest of the low in their society would drink from. This is a picture of the waters of life that are there for anyone who would come. The only thing that keeps you from coming to Jesus is your pride. Again, either thinking you don't need a savior or again, not believing his promises can be true for you. That is another form of pride. But the invitation is open to all who will come, all who see their need to come. And as we look towards Jesus' table, know that that invitation is there, again, for all who see their need, for all who know that you're broken and need a savior. Jesus welcomes you. And again, you are welcome to this table. All who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, no matter what you've done in your life in the past or even today, if you're trusting in Jesus, his promises are true for you. There's no condemnation for you. He is strong enough for you to cast all of your cares and anxieties upon. Again, if you're looking to him in faith, know that he has already taken upon himself all of your sin on the cross. He's taken all the judgment that your sin deserves on the cross so that you might be forgiven. So again, if you belong to him, would you take a cup that's here before you? As you remember what Jesus has done for us. As you remember Jesus, the eternal son, again in humility came as a man and had his body broken on the cross. Jesus broke the bread with his disciples and this is my body broken for you. Jesus had his body broken on the cross so that he might offer you life. He died so that you might have life. Jesus called himself the bread of life and said, whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Let's take and eat together.
the same way when Jesus with his disciples took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sin. Again, hear me again, no matter what you've done. The promise of the scriptures are, if you are faithful to confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Take and drink together. Father, as, as we taste your goodness and your grace to us in Jesus in our mouths right now, may you use this to work these truths more deeply into our hearts. I pray that in humility, we would turn from ourselves and our sin, and our pride and look to Jesus in faith. Whether that's for the first time for someone this afternoon or for the 10,000th time, help us to behold Jesus afresh through faith. Father, I pray that you would Help us to not pridefully look inward and in thinking that we can fix our own problems, but that we would look outward and cast all of our cares upon you, knowing you care for us. And as we do that, I pray that we would clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. I pray that humility, not pride, would mark our lives together as a church family and that our city would know the reputation of our church to be those that look to Jesus in faith, who know that he's our only hope and humbly walk in love towards him and towards one another. We know because of sin and because of our pride, these things are impossible in ourselves. But we thank you the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. So we pray you would empower us by your spirit to walk in step with the gospel. We ask that you would do these things in our hearts, in our lives, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name.